We are delighted to be joined by the brilliant author, Mark Talbot. Welcome to Expositive Word, Mark. It's good to be here, David. Before we talk about your brand new book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. I've been here since 92. Before that, I taught at Calvin College for five years. Um, we uh, attend a, a Presbyterian Church in America church. Um, I, um, my wife is my wife of over 40 years. We have one daughter. Yeah, ah, brilliant. So how did you become a Christian? I was 12 and was just becoming aware of my inability to uh, conquer what I knew were uh, serious temptations and yeah. was at a retreat for um, young uh, boys um, at a place called The Furs, which was in Bellingham, Washington. Mm. And the fellow who wrote the little book, My Heart Christ's Home, was the speaker that weekend. Yeah. And uh, he made a clear case for why we needed uh, God's help and grace in order to um, uh, be able to live as we should and uh, when he offered an invitation I accepted. Yeah, oh wow. So how did you actually come to write this book then Mark? Um, this is actually the first of four volumes David. Yeah. Uh, they are all on the topic of suffering in the Christian life. They were initially going to be one book but then I thought that <laughs> giving people a book of seven to eight hundred pages would not be likely to be <laughs> yeah. really really welcoming to people who were suffering. Yeah. And so this is the first volume. It's responding to a tragedy with one of my students of a few years ago who was severely depressed and then committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And what it's meant to do is to confront head-on the sort of excruciating suffering that some of us as Christians uh, will face in our lifetimes. Yeah, sure. So have you already written the other three? Uh, the second one is all but done. Um, the third and the fourth are framed out. The second one is called um, Give Me Understanding That I May Live uh, and deals with the full Christian story. The third volume deals with the importance of words to us. Um, uh, I uh, claim that Scripture is supposed to become our primary language yeah. and then deals with what Scripture has to say about providence. The fourth volume deals with faith, hope, and love and the eschaton. And it's, in fact, called All the Good That Is Ours in Christ. Those last two are being completed uh, over the next couple of years. And Lord willing, there will be one out each August for the next four years. Ah, fantastic. OK, we'll, we'll look forward to that. So give us an overview of the first one. And who did you have in mind when you wrote it? And how are you hoping that it helps them? Well, this one opens by recounting the suffering of the parents of my student who committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'm attempting to do is to help them and others um, um, find answers to the sorts of questions that arise when we are going through excruciating or what I call profound suffering. Among the questions that they found themselves asking were, how could God allow this to happen to our son? We know that God's all-powerful and he governs everything, so why didn't he alter this course of events? Um, and um, they, they recognize that God um, uh, knows everything, and so they want to know why he afflicted their son with this burden of depression when God always knew that it would end in his death. Mm -hmm. 
um, uh, questions like that are the ones that I'm trying to deal with. They, they, in fact, this um, um, uh, young man tried to call me uh, an hour before he took his life by stepping in front of a train. Mm-hmm. And um, I, we were preparing for church. It was a Sunday morning. I had heard the answering machine pick up on things. When I went by in the kitchen as we're getting ready to go to church, I hit the button on it, and um, the student identified himself, and he asked if I was there. He sounded fine, so I thought perhaps he was just back in the United States, and um, uh, then the the next day, his dad had called and said that um, uh, their son had died in an accident, and I had a sense that it might have been a suicide. They didn't know that until the next day. Uh, They ask questions like, why didn't God arrange things so that at least one of the three people whom he tried to call in that last hour of his life would have answered the telephone and perhaps uh, helped him to find a way to live through another day? So what I try to show in this book, in this volume, uh, which is called When the Stars Disappear, what I try to show is that the sort of profound suffering that these parents are going through isn't rare in Scripture. And we see that if we pay careful, detailed attention to uh, the stories in Scripture that deal with suffering. I deal in this book particularly with Naomi, Job, Jeremiah, and some of the psalmists. Mm-hmm. And I think that just knowing that profound suffering, that excruciating suffering, is part of the storyline in Scripture quite often helps us to bear our own suffering. Yeah. Wow, I, I can just so see this being such a helpful resource for so many people. I mean, obviously, this must have had a profound effect on, on you personally as well. But do you have your own story of suffering your, yourself as well, Mark? I do. Um, when I was 17, I mm. fell about 50 feet off a rope swing, a Tarzan-like rope swing. Mm. Um, another fellow had jumped on and, and uh, caught um, me instead of the rope, and uh, we swung out over a deep gully, and when we got at the end, I realized I was going to fall, and I just thought, if I fall on him, I'll kill him. And so we got peeled off. There was actually a third guy on the swing, too. Uh, and um, uh, I landed with my shoulders, my feet went over my head, and I broke my back. And uh, after I'd become a Christian at 12, I just found that I was getting in some ways wilder and wilder and had prayed, I don't want to say that God was answering this prayer as such, but had prayed that God would do whatever was necessary to keep me close to him. And the interesting thing is that as soon as I hit the ground, I had this sense of the fact uh, that uh, God loved me. Um, I I held the other fellow down because I knew we had to be hurt. And when I had him uh, calm down, I looked and saw that my legs were in this little stream, this little creek of water, and that I wasn't feeling anything. And I knew immediately what I had done to myself. Uh, and, And I just felt God's love from that moment on. And what it did was it more or less... Um, um, having to have to deal with paralysis. I was in the hospital for six months, and ever since, I I walked with a cane for years, and then with a a couple of forearm crutches, I'm now in a wheelchair and have been since uh, 2016 when I uh, broke a hip. Mm -hmm. But, But what it's done through all those years 
is that a lot of the distractions of life have just dropped away for me uh, because I have to deal with this and I have to deal with it by trusting and relying on God. So that was the kind of um, suffering that got me um, uh, relying on God. I've dealt with lots of other things since that aren't physical suffering, and I've found out that all of those things, even when I can't fully understand them, um, uh, are a gift that makes me rely on God to lean on him rather than on myself. What does it mean to suffer profoundly? And as Christians, how should we look at any seasons of suffering in our lives? Well, the way that I characterize profound suffering in the book is that it involves experiencing some something that's so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciousness mm. and it threatens to overwhelm us. Uh, it often tempts us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good again. Mm. I think that both calamities, such as my uh, friends losing their son to suicide and chronic conditions, including uh, things like the continuous care of a severely disabled child or my students seemingly never-ending struggle with depression, both calamities and chronic conditions can produce profound suffering. Yeah. I wanted to find suffering more generally as saying that we suffer whenever we experience something that is unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm pulling that out of Hebrews 12, where, in fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that when God disciplines us, it's unpleasant at the time. It's never pleasant, but it leads, in fact, to good things. So what I want to say is that if we understand suffering as this experience of something that's unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end, if we understand it that way, we're able to see that the Old Testament records a great deal of suffering. Yeah. Some of it, in fact, is relatively mild, such as uh, when God cursed the ground um, after Adam and Eve sinned and told Adam that it would be through the sweat of his brow that he would um, uh, more or less wrench from the ground um, uh, uh, enough for him and his family to live on. That's relatively mild suffering. It's suffering that goes on every day. Yeah. The Old Testament goes from suffering like that through really, really significant suffering. We just don't generally notice that suffering until we are ourselves starting to suffer. And then we start to read scripture asking God by his spirit to help us notice and understand the stories of suffering in scripture. And of course, there are all sorts of ones in the New Testament, too. Mm, yeah, sure. What role does suffering play in our sanctification? It seems to me it has several roles. Uh, one of them you get in Romans 5, 3 through 5, mm. where, of course, Paul says we rejoice in our suffering, mm. knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Sanctification is in part that process of coming to love God more and more through the influence of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the ways that that works involves the way that suffering interrupts our daily lives, disrupts them to some degree, 
um, um, uh, takes away from their pleasantness. And those interruptions or those disruptions, that unpleasantness in our daily experience reminds us that this life doesn't and can't give us what is truly satisfying. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Hebrews 11 is especially good at portraying that. Uh, we're told in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11 that the people mentioned in the previous verses, it includes Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, yeah. and now I'm quoting those verses, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Mm -hmm. And then the author of Hebrews uh, says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, in other words, of any country in this world, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, the author of Hebrews tells us, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Mm -hmm because he's prepared a city for them, as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, that is this city that's to come. It's the one that's talked about, of course, in Revelation 21, as this holy city, the new Jerusalem, that will come down uh, out of heaven from God. Yeah. And so it seems to me that it is uh, as we suffer that we're sanctified by having our hearts pried away from all of the various kinds of distractions uh, and uh, lesser goods that, um, that regularly tempt even us as Christians in this life and make us look up, uh, look up from the earth and, and, uh, and recognize that God is calling us to something much greater, which is face-to-face -face communion with him mm -hmm. in the eschaton, in the consummation. You've already touched on the stories involving Naomi, Job, Jeremiah, and the psalmists. How can these stories encourage us not to give up? Well, it seems to me one of the things that I stress is that both Naomi and Job were mistaken about what their suffering implied. Mm. Uh, they lost hope. In other words, they despaired because the word despair comes from the Latin for losing hope. Yeah. They despaired because they thought their suffering would go on forever. Mm. And of course, that's why Naomi uh, wanted a permanent name change from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. It's also why Job declares in a wonderful poignant line that his eye would never again see good. Mm. And yet they were both wrong. Yeah. They both again saw good. Um, and most of us do that after we've suffered profoundly. Um, um, suffering lasts for a season, and usually we come through it in some degree. Jeremiah, interestingly enough, though, shows us that it's crucial to persist and not to lose hope even if the rest of our lives involve suffering. It's interesting that Jeremiah, um, uh, uh, the, the whole of, of what we get in the book, 
um, uh, never resolves in such a way that Jeremiah is in uh, a pleasant way again. Mm -hmm. He never knows pleasantness um, uh, as the end state of this life. Um, His story actually um, uh, has the kind of discontinuities that you find in stories that are told by people who have survived torture. And in fact, there's good reason to think that in Jeremiah 20, that when Pasher put him in the stocks, that that twisted or tortured him in a certain kind of way. Uh, And that was the point where Jeremiah was angriest with God and said to God, you've deceived me. Uh, You didn't tell me that it would get this bad. But Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that after he uh, says that to God in chapter 20, that chapter 21 speaks of another pasture that, in fact, Jeremiah um, uh, talks with, and uh, it's 15 or 20 years later, and from chapter 21 on, and from chapter 21 on, Jeremiah is not a chronological account of Jeremiah's life. It just gives us snapshots from various parts of it. Mm -hmm. From there on, Jeremiah never loses his faith and his hope, even though in his earthly life, he never uh, is relieved of his deep suffering. Yeah. yeah. Then if you go on and you think about the psalmists, you realize that the psalmists teach us to expect that God will hear our prayers and that he'll respond to our suffering by the fact that all of the songs of lament, and of course there are more songs of lament among the psalms than anything else, that all of the songs of the lament but one, which is Psalm 88, all of them include either a vow to praise God when things get better, mm-hmm. or in fact they include actual praise because things actually have improved. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the way that I put it with the Psalms is that since most of them are shorter than a page, they give us snapshots that are supposed to um, help us recognize uh, that God, in fact, will remedy our situation usually in this life but not always yeah sure we know that god is sovereign what does that actually mean and what does it mean in the context of our suffering yeah really really good question god's sovereignty means that nothing happens in all of creation Mm. not even the worst of things which doesn't have his guiding hand upon it It's tremendously important, and if we had a lot of time, we could talk about how that follows from the fact that God created the the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Because if he created ex nihilo out of nothing, then in fact, uh, the world's continuing to exist from, we could say, nanosecond to nanosecond, only happens because God continues to hold it in existence and to... Um, uh, account for everything that happens in the world from nanosecond to nanosecond. Mm -hmm. So God's sovereignty, in fact, means that nothing happens in all of creation that doesn't have his guiding hand upon it. And although sometimes we cannot even imagine how something really awful could have come from his hand, we are assured that he is nevertheless guiding all things. So that as Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God. Mm. Mm. Now, we may not be able to see that in this life, but we are assured 
that we will be able to see it in the next life. Mm -hmm. The Apostle Paul probably suffered more than anyone else in the New Testament short of our Lord. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, we have him chronicle that in 2 Corinthians. And he says in 2 Corinthians that our current suffering, he calls our current suffering our light and momentary troubles. Mm -hmm. And what he says is that those light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If we remember that God is sovereign and that uh, he keeps his word, that he is trustworthy and that his purposes can never be stifled because, in fact, everything that happens in the world is under his control and, and in his guiding hand. If we keep that in mind, then that is the basis for our being able to uh, survive our suffering, no matter how bad it is in this life. Yeah, so good. Unfortunately, there are many Christians caught up in the prosperity gospel, and therefore they don't even have a category for suffering. What would you say to these people? Well, I think the first thing that I would say to them is that they need to read their Bibles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they need to read all of Scripture. Yeah. And that they mustn't scrimp on reading the Old Testament. Mm. And they mustn't approach Scripture as if it's a manual that tells us how to succeed in this life. Yeah. I find with my students, I teach a course on suffering virtually every term, mm. I find with my students that quite often they actually heave audible sighs of relief when they realize that there's a great deal of suffering in Scripture. Yeah. Because, in fact, they have this kind of underlying sense that if we are too Pollyannish about uh, the Christian life, if we think that God is going to protect us from deep suffering, then there must be something wrong with the story. Yeah. And, and it's only as we get into Scripture, and particularly as we read it, um, uh, when we ourselves suffer or someone that we love is suffering, that then this gets corrected. And people who are caught in the prosperity gospel need to read the whole of Scripture. They need not to just take some proof texts mm -hmm. that are wrenched out of context mm -hmm. that make them think that they're God's favorites and that therefore they won't suffer. Yeah. Why is it so dangerous and what can we do to correct a false teaching? I mean, this is the public face for, for many people. If you was to go onto iTunes and look at the, you know, the most popular podcast or even walk into the Christian bookshop, the bestsellers are full of these people peddling the prosperity gospel. What can we do yeah. to correct that false teaching? I think, among other things, we need to uh, stop implying that Christians can become mature in their faith by being exposed to scripture and little bite-sized pieces. Yeah. Uh, we need um, to understand that becoming the people of God, uh, uh, the God that uh, the, becoming the people that God calls us to be, requires the renewal of our minds, which requires steady work and application. It requires time in Scripture. 
scripture and uh, books that try to make clear what scripture says and good sermons and so on and so forth, they need to be prioritized over everything else. Mm. And in fact, interestingly enough, Proverbs 4, 4 through 7, makes that quite clear. Mm. It says, um, uh, the, the uh, writer says, Then my father taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it cost you all you have. Yeah. Get understanding. That's the NIV of the very end of, of, of the seventh verse. Though yeah. it cost you all you have, get understanding. And I quite often say when I'm out lecturing on this sort of stuff, I, I actually challenge the people who are listening to me. I say, are you willing to spend money on really good study Bibles, on great commentaries on Scripture, on books that cover topics in Scripture in a biblical way, and then really to work your way through it, because the way that this costs us includes our being willing to give our time mm -hmm. to this business of mm -hmm. understanding what God is telling us through his word. Are we willing to uh, pay the costs to become what God wants us to be, and which we owe to him, as Romans 12, 1 makes clear, yeah. because of what he has done for us and saving us through the gospel. Yeah, so good. What is the best way to be a Christian friend when someone is suffering? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any answer, any one answer to that, <laughs> and, uh, and the answer is different, yeah. in fact, at different stages of suffering. Yeah. When my friends uh, first lost their son, um, uh, trying to say to them something like, they're there uh, someday in this life or in the next life, uh, it'll become clear to you that uh, God was doing something here for which you will thank him, mm -hmm. uh, would have been absolutely incredible and wouldn't have helped at all. Yeah. Uh, we're to weep with those who weep at, uh, um, uh, when that's appropriate. Uh, and, and I think more than anything else, what we need to do is we need to understand where people are in their suffering, be willing to listen to them. Uh, the psychological, the empirical evidence is that if someone loses someone that they love very dearly, that it takes up to seven and a half years to get back to what is considered, what, what's put in the psychological language as the same uh, level of psychological well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, what they've found is that um, uh, you can measure well-being objectively. You can measure subjective well-being objectively, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, with people who have had an accident like mine, what they find is that after about a year, if people have survived it, uh, they still will find their lives worth living, even though uh, they will find that um, that the kind of pleasantness their lives involves is remarkably less than it was before, but they'll still find that that's so. Well, what they found is that, for instance, if you love, if you if you lose someone that you really love, a spouse that you really love, that while of course things get better over time. Quite often, you don't get back to the place 
that you feel as if your life is as good as it was before you lost, lost that spouse for about seven or seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's really interesting here, David, is that Christians who have paid attention to people suffering know that. Years mm-hmm. ago, I was given a series of lectures on this with one of my friends out in California. He's a pastor, had a wonderful church. And he wanted me to talk to a man who had lost his wife uh, a year before and was deep in grief. And so I kind of tested the pastor. I said, Steve, how long do you think it is before somebody who's in the kind of grief that he's in uh, is likely to feel uh, pretty much the same as the person felt before? And he immediately answered seven years. Mm-hmm. He had just found in ministering to people over uh, over many, many years that uh, getting over grief takes a long time. And as a result, what we need to do is to understand where people are and be patient with them and, uh, and, and meet them where they are. They're asking questions about how God is involved in things is not the first thing that they do. Yeah. And so that's not the time to be answering questions that they're not asking. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. So good. How would you share the gospel with someone that has a loved one that is suffering profoundly? Hmm. Um, I would want to say that ultimately the only fully satisfactory answer for why someone suffers profoundly in this life is the Christian answer that acknowledges that this life is not the end of everything. The way that I read Ecclesiastes is that all of the talk about under the sun, under heaven, and so on and so forth, is the sage's way of talking about what you can see, what you can observe in this world. And he admits that some of the things that you observe just aren't, they just don't make sense. You see a righteous person getting what a wicked person deserves and a wicked person getting what a righteous person deserves. Mm -hmm. He recognizes that, that wisdom is a good thing and yet that ultimately both fools and wise people die. And it seems to me that what's going on in Ecclesiastes then is that actually the author of of Ecclesiastes is recognizing that what is told us in the earliest chapters of Genesis about the way that after our first parents fell, after they rebelled, God subjected the whole of creation uh, to uh, the curse that accounts for our death and for the hardness of life. What I think the author of Ecclesiastes is doing is uh, saying, remember that, and then then recognize that, that this life, if it is all, just can't explain everything and can't be satisfying. And so I think what I'd say is that if you've got a loved one who is suffering profoundly, the greatest and only lasting hope that you can have and that you can give to that person is that God indeed is sovereign, that he is in charge, and that um, that he will bring everything out right in the end mm-hmm. for those who, in fact, have put their faith and hope 
in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Mark, it's been an incredible half an hour. It's gone so quickly and you've you've only just scraped the surface of what's in your brilliant book. Thank you so much for writing it and thank you for your time in, in coming on the show today as well. Well, thank you for having me, David. Mark, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, probably um, uh, they, one of the best ways would be to contact the philosophy department at Wheaton College. Okay, brilliant. And do you do social media at all, Mark? No, um, hardly any of it. It seems to me that um, uh, <laughs> that social media is a rather blunt instrument in some ways yeah. for, um, uh, for being able to deal with these deep issues. So yeah. I've just basically left it alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know you're a big fan of Skype. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I I do a fair amount on Zoom nowadays and so on because we've had to in the college. Yeah, that's great. That's just a quick private joke because me and Mark was right. we spent fifteen minutes before trying to get connected. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I've loved speaking to you, and hopefully we can we can grab another conversation next August when the second volume comes out. I would love to, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>